Hi there, welcome to Bond Investment Mentor. I'm your host, Chris Nelson, and this is a podcast dedicated to helping community financial institutions master the art of fixed income investments. If you're working for a community bank or credit union and you have responsibilities for the investment portfolio, you've come to the right place. I'll be your personal investment guide as we help you boost your fixed income investment knowledge, level up your portfolio management skills, and help you gain the know-how you need to help your institution achieve its financial goals. In this episode, we're going to explore a concept that is a critical element to managing a financial institution's investment portfolio successfully. I'm talking about optionality, also known as option risk. We're going to cover what this risk is and how it can affect investment securities and your investment portfolio. This episode is going to be a meaty one, so grab some extra coffee, settle down, and let's get started. Hey there, welcome to Bond Investment Mentor. I'm glad you stopped by. If it's your first time listening in, thanks for checking out the podcast. I hope that you'll find lots of useful information. And if you're a regular BIM customer, welcome back. In today's episode, I'll be covering one of those topics that is a core concept if you manage a community financial institution investment portfolio. It's called option risk or optionality, and it's one of those things that can really make things challenging if you let it get away from you. As I think about it, I'd say that optionality is either at the top or pretty darn close to the top of my list of investment management skills that you really want to know. It was something that I learned about early on in my career, and mastering it made all the difference in the world. We'll dive into optionality shortly, but first, I'm also going to be covering some recent economic and market data since we last met. We'll check out the latest news from our friends at the Federal Reserve, and I'll update you on the latest monthly prepayment data for mortgage-backed securities. So we're officially past the first half of the year, and what a ride that was, huh? We saw some wild and historic moves in the yield curve, along with the volatility and the chaos that it created. So let's take a look at what rates did in the first six months of the year. We know that it's not pretty, and I'm not going to tiptoe around here. We're just going to rip the bandage right off. The 10-year Treasury rate increased by about 150 basis points in the first half of this year, going from 1.51% to 3.02%. In the belly of the curve, the five-year Treasury jumped from 1.26% to 3.04%, or about 175 basis points. The big winner, if you want to call it that, was the two-year Treasury, which shot up from 0.73% on December 31st to 2.96% on June 30th, or 223 basis points. As I've mentioned before, it's been almost 40 years since we've experienced some of the moves that we saw recently. As we enter into Q3, let's review some of the most recent economic data. The data that drew the most attention uh, in the holiday-shortened week was the June unemployment report. The Labor Department reported that non-farm payrolls rose by 372,000, which was better than expected. Some of that number was offset, however, by previous month's revisions. May's non-farm payrolls were reduced modestly by 6,000, while the April data was revised 68,000 lower. If we adjust the June results for those revisions, the result was still slightly better than economists had expected. The June unemployment rate held steady at 3.6%. 
The stronger-than-expected employment report pushed Treasury yields higher. As I'm recording this after the close for the week, the two-year Treasury rate was 3.11%, while the five-year Treasury yielded 3.13%. On the long end of the curve, the 10-year Treasury rate was 3.08%. If we look back at employment data for the past few months, job growth has continued to hold relatively steady. So what does this mean for our friends at the Federal Reserve? Well, with the labor market stabilizing for now, it gives the Fed room to keep doing what they said they would do in terms of monetary policy. In related news, the Fed released the minutes from the June FOMC meeting, which reinforced the hawkish actions and comments that we've heard of late. In the minutes, the committee members agreed that they would have to continue raising short-term interest rates to contain inflationary pressures and consumer inflation expectations. According to the minutes, this means increasing rates to what they called a restrictive stance, which is a level that's above what the Fed considers its neutral rate and high enough to slow growth and temper inflation. In addition, the FOMC said that they stood ready to apply additional rate pressure if inflation doesn't cool down from where it is currently. Based on a healthy labor market and elevated inflation levels, the minutes indicated a strong consensus that monetary policy accommodation needs to be removed. In reviewing the minutes, it's apparent that the FOMC is concerned mostly about inflation expectations. If they can't contain those expectations, it opens the door to a longer and more protracted battle to fight inflation by the Fed. The FOMC members acknowledge that maintaining a more restrictive position did increase the risk of recession, but that such action was necessary to prevent more entrenched inflation levels. These factors were incorporated as well into the committee's quarterly summary of economic projections, which showed real GDP slowing over the course of this year and a Fed funds rate target of between 3 and 3.5%. The minutes also indicated that the committee outlook was for a 50 or 75 basis point rate hike when they next meet at the end of July. We've heard a lot lately about what's happening with the Federal Reserve and interest rates. But what about quantitative tightening? Remember that? The Fed began letting their holdings of treasuries and mortgage-backed securities run off in June, although it's arguably at a snail's pace. Currently, the FOMC has agreed to reduce treasury holdings by up to $30 billion per month and mortgage securities by up to $17.5 billion per month over the summer before doubling that pace in September. Based on current projections, the Fed's securities portfolio would be reduced by about $400 billion by the end of 2022. Now, that sounds like a huge number, but keep in mind that that projected runoff represents about 4% of the Fed's balance sheet. So on a relative basis, not as big as maybe you might have thought. So in light of the FOMC minutes and the employment report, where are the markets? They've pretty much firmed up on a 75 basis point move by the Fed in a few weeks, with the Fed Fund's futures indicating a 96% likelihood of such a move. Beyond that, the futures are indicating a 50 basis point move when the FOMC meets in September, and the current outlook is for a Fed Fund's rate of possibly 3.5% by the end of the year. However, I want to see things play out a little more before looking toward year-end. 
Finally, in other Fed news, the Boston Federal Reserve District has a new president. Susan Collins, no, not the U.S. Senator from Maine, different woman, same name, became the new president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston. Collins has been working at the University of Michigan and has previously worked at the Chicago Fed. She's definitely going to hit the ground running. Since the Boston Fed is currently on the rotation of voting members for the Federal Open Market Committee this year, Collins will immediately become involved with decisions on interest rates and shaping monetary policy. Her first meeting as a voting member will be the upcoming July FOMC meeting. The July prepayment data for mortgage-backed securities was released recently, and the results were a bit of a mixed bag. Overall, prepayment speeds slowed by about 4% in the July report, which is based on June activity. But the real story depends on what part of the market we're talking about. On average, prepayment speeds for 30-year MBS pools were marginally slower for Fannie and Freddie Paper at speeds between 8 and 9 CPR, while Ginny May Paper slowed by about a full point to between 13 and 14 CPR. As you'd expect, most of the slowdown in prepayments stems from the rise in mortgage rates, which peaked just above 6% for 30-year residential mortgage loans in the past few weeks before pulling back modestly. With shorter-term mortgage securities, it's a different prepayment story as prepayment speeds for 10 15- and 20-year agency-backed MBS were flat to marginally higher. The average prepayment speed for 10-year mortgage securities was about 10 CPR, while 15-year pools had an average prepayment speed of approximately 9 CPR. 20-year mortgage paper had an average prepayment speed between 7 and 8 CPR. With continued higher mortgage rates, the incentive for borrowers to refinance remains near zero. According to Walt Schmidt over at FHN Financial, the percentage of 30-year mortgage-backed securities that is 50 basis points in the money and therefore more likely to refi has gone from about 48% a year ago to less than 1% today. With little expectation for the mortgage rate environment to change anytime soon, prepayments are more likely to be driven by seasonal factors and less by rate-driven decisions. All right, now it's time for our main topic, and it's one that is among the most important topics that I'm likely to cover on this podcast. I'm not saying that to be dramatic. This is one of those things that a fixed income portfolio manager needs to really understand. It's a risk factor that can change how the investment portfolio behaves, sometimes very quickly. And if it's not managed well, it can make the job of being an investment portfolio manager a lot harder than it needs to be. So now that I've set the mood, what is this important risk? It's called option risk. Another name for it is optionality. If you're managing an investment portfolio for your community financial institution, you'll want to stay on top of this risk. If you do, you'll find that the portfolio overall behaves much better. It will act more in line with your objectives, and it won't subject you to as many headaches, surprises, and extra work. We've all got a lot to do, and the last thing we need is to create more work for ourselves, right? Today, I'm going to cover four key areas about optionality. First, we'll review what option risk or optionality is. 
Then we're going to take a look at what we mean by embedded options, and I'll share a couple of examples. After that, we'll examine two types of option risk and how optionality affects securities and investment portfolios. And then finally, we'll cover the ways that a portfolio manager can manage option risk. Okay, let's start at the beginning. What is option risk and what do we mean by optionality? When a fixed income security or portfolio has exposure to option risk, it means that the principal cash flows associated with a security or portfolio may vary from what the expected payment schedule would indicate. What causes this? The cash flow variation is due to the presence of something called embedded options, which can cause principal payments to either speed up or slow down. As a result, an investor's principal cash flows may be faster or slower than expected. And as we'll see, these shifts in the cash flow timeline create a level of uncertainty about when an investor will receive their investment principal. Optionality can change how the security behaves and how it can affect the whole portfolio depending on the risk exposure. Now, as you might expect, option risk is created when options are present. What do we mean by options and how do they work? Let's start with a definition. An option is a financial agreement between two parties that allows one party to take some action in the future against the other party. Every option has a buyer, the party that controls when the action will be taken, and a seller, the party that must perform as indicated by the action. Because the buyer of the option has this ability to take some future action, otherwise known as controlling when the option is exercised, they'll compensate the seller of the option for ensuring that the future action will occur. In the case of fixed income securities, the options are referred to as embedded options. The option is considered embedded because it is built into the security itself. It's not a standalone investment like the options you'll hear about that are traded directly in the financial markets. There are two sides to any options trade, and it's no different with embedded options in fixed income securities. The two parties, as I said before, are the option buyer and the option seller. Let's look at the differences between them. First, the option buyer holds what's referred to as the long position in the trade. Meanwhile, the option seller holds what's called the short position. In the case of fixed income investments with embedded options, the bond issuer or the mortgage borrower is the option buyer and holds the long position in the option. If you're investing in securities with options, then you are the option seller and you're in the short position. I previously said that an option allows one party to take some action in the future against the other party. The option buyer is the party with the right to act at its discretion they have the right to make some form of early principal payment. Meanwhile, the option seller has an obligation to respond when the buyer decides to exercise their option. There's no choice in the matter, and it's not up for debate or negotiation. If the issuer or borrower acts on the option, the investor must respond. What determines whether the option buyer will exercise their right to take action? In most cases, the driver for that decision is due to changes in interest rates. Now, holding an option is not a free ride. There is a cost for the option, for which the option buyer pays a premium. The option seller receives the premium as payment for the option structure. 
In the case of fixed income securities with embedded options, this comes in the form of a higher yield. Basically, the option premium becomes part of the yield spread for the security. If you're a financial institution investor, how might you come across optionality in an investment? There are two basic ways that you might see option risk. The first way is through callable bonds. When a bond is callable, it means that the issuer has the option to pay off the bond ahead of its final maturity date. The issuer might have the option to call the bond in a matter of months from issuance, or it could be years. In addition, the issuer may have more than one option to call the bond depending on the structure. Callable bonds are most likely to be government agency or municipal bonds. The second way you'll come across optionality is through mortgage-backed securities. With mortgage-backed securities, the mortgage borrower has the option to prepay on the mortgage, either by paying off the mortgage early, such as during a refinancing, or paying down the principal balance through extra payments, otherwise known as curtailments. So that's what we mean by embedded options, how they work, and how they'll show up in investments. So now that we know all that, let's look at two common types of option risk that can occur. What's important to keep in mind here is that the risk that is present generally depends on which direction interest rates are moving. The first type of optionality is called prepayment risk. This is the risk that investment principal is returned sooner than the stated final maturity or scheduled amortization. It will show up either as early principal payoffs when a bond gets called or as mortgage principal prepayments. Prepayment risk is a more significant concern for investors when interest rates fall because the issuer or borrower has more incentive to refinance the bond or mortgage loan in that situation. The second type of option risk is known as extension risk. This is the risk that principal payments are returned more slowly than expected or scheduled. Basically, it's the flip side of prepayment risk. When principal cash flows are delayed or extended, the investment ends up with a longer life and carries higher interest rate risk. This lengthening also means that the price sensitivity on the investment increases in line with the extension risk. As you might expect, this is a more significant concern when interest rates rise, leaving issuers and borrowers less likely to exercise their call option. After all, why would an issuer or borrower consider refinancing if interest rates are moving higher? All right, so we've covered the basics of option risk. So given what we've learned, how does optionality affect securities and the investment portfolio? Let's start by looking at callable bonds. Suppose a community financial institution holds a callable bond in its investment portfolio. Then let's assume that interest rates decline. In that case, the issuer would likely exercise their option and call the bond early instead of waiting for the maturity date. As a result, the investor must now take their proceeds from the payoff and reinvest them at a lower yield. Remember, the reason for the bond being called is that interest rates had dropped below where they were when the bond was issued. Another impact of lower rates and an increased likelihood of a bond being called is that the market price is capped. Normally, interest rates and bond prices move in the opposite direction. 
If interest rates drop, bond prices move higher. However, investors in a callable bond will not pay a premium over par when the options exercise appears to be likely because the bond's payoff will occur at par. That means that a callable bond will not appreciate in value when interest rates decline. What about when an investor holds callable bonds and interest rates rise? When that happens, the issuer wouldn't exercise their option if interest rates moved above the bond's coupon rate. As a result, the bond would extend to its final maturity. The price change would now look much like a bond without a call option. An option that isn't worth exercising is referred to as an out-of-the-money option. If you think about it from the issuer's perspective, why would they consider calling the bond? Higher interest rates would cost them more in interest expense if they called the existing security and replaced it at the higher current market levels. What's the effect to the investor? With the embedded call option out of the money and the issuer on the sidelines, the option risk dissipates and the callable bond would act more like a traditional bullet bond structure. For some investors, that might be bad news. Why? Sometimes an investor will choose to invest in a callable bond to pick up a higher yield than bullet structures, along with the expectation that the bond will be called early. If the situation plays out that way, then things are fine. However, if interest rates rise and the bond extends to its final maturity, the investor could end up with a longer-term structure than they planned on instead. Plus, with rates rising and given the inverse relationship between yield and price, the bond's price would decline, reflecting the lower interest cash flows compared to current market conditions. Depending on the book price, the price drop could also result in the bond trading at an unrealized loss. And with the bond trading to its maturity instead of the shorter call date, the investor would also experience a higher level of interest rate risk as the bond price becomes more volatile. The extension risk also means that the investor is effectively stuck with a lower-yielding investment. This scenario is what some investors experienced recently when interest rates rose sharply and quickly. In some cases, embedded call options fell out of the money almost overnight, and the likelihood of the bond ever being called fell to near zero. Because of this, the bond extended and its price became more volatile, which added to unrealized loss pressures in fixed-income portfolios. As the holder of a short-option position in a callable bond, investors will find that the bond never behaves as they might wish when interest rates change. The bond would likely be called when rates drop, even though the investor would prefer to hold on to the higher coupon rate. And when rates rise, they're left holding a lower-yielding investment unless they choose to sell the bond, possibly at a loss. Now let's consider optionality's effect on mortgage-backed securities. If interest rates fall, the mortgage borrowers represented in the mortgage pool would have a higher tendency to exercise their option to refinance and prepay their existing mortgage. As prepayment risk on the security increases, the investor receives higher amounts of return principal. This has two consequences. First, the return of principal means that the investor must reinvest those proceeds in the lower interest rate environment. This is similar to the callable bond example I mentioned earlier. Remember, the reason that the principal is being returned early is due to lower rates, which now become a factor in any reinvestment. 
In addition, the faster prepayment may have accounting consequences on the security's book yield if the investor purchased the mortgage security at a premium. Under those circumstances, the quicker amortization would drive the investment's book yield lower, possibly to near 0% or even potentially to a negative yield level in a worst-case scenario. In a rising rate environment, the effects of optionality on mortgage securities shift the other way. Now, prepayments from mortgage borrowers are reduced as interest rates rise, slowing the principal cash flows that an investor receives. As a result, the mortgage security begins to morph into a longer-term investment and extension risk begins to rise. The investment's price sensitivity or interest rate risk also begins to increase due to the longer life of the mortgage pool. Just as we saw with the callable bonds, an investor in mortgage-backed securities and their inherent optionality finds that the investment doesn't behave as they might desire when interest rates change. If rates decline, more principal is received by the investor than they likely desire. This was very common a couple of years ago when rates collapsed in the wake of the pandemic and prepayment speed shot higher in the resulting refi wave. On the other hand, if interest rates rise, then principal cash flows will slow down, creating longer-lived investments and paying out a lower level of principal for reinvestment in the higher rate environment. As you can see, option risk has the potential to create challenges and headaches in both rising and falling interest rate environments. From a portfolio perspective, optionality can make managing the investment portfolio as a risk-reward tool more difficult. With the uncertain potential for principal cash flow to change as interest rates and market conditions do, it makes trying to manage a community financial institution's interest rate risk or liquidity risk a little harder. It can also hurt the earnings potential of the portfolio as exercised options take the legs out from under a portfolio with above market yields if rates fall or reduce available principal for reinvestment at higher yields when interest rates rise. So you can see why I consider optionality a critical concept to understand as a portfolio manager. So what can we do to manage option risk? I have three tips to share with you that I hope will help. Tip number one, take steps to limit optionality in the investment portfolio. Now, notice that I didn't say eliminate optionality. Is it possible to do that? The short answer is yes, but your portfolio yield is going to reflect that. For example, you could build a portfolio that had nothing but treasuries and bullet agency bonds in it. Is there any optionality? Nope. But think about the earnings potential of such a portfolio. The yield would probably be lower, and it might not be an acceptable reward for what you're trying to do with the portfolio. The bottom line is that you'll likely have some degree of option risk present. What's important is to not let it become a major factor in the portfolio. How do you do that? By evaluating the factors that could influence the option holder's decision. If we're talking about a callable bond, for example, the one factor that will drive that decision is interest rates. You'll want to think about how the bond will behave if rates are higher or lower than they are today. How will the option holder, the issuer, respond? And what does that mean for you, the investor? With mortgage-backed securities, there are more moving parts to think about. While interest rates are important, you'll also want to have some understanding of the underlying loan and collateral characteristics. 
I discussed some of these factors in the last episode about Bloomberg yield tables back in episode 19. By taking a little time to understand the loans that you own in a mortgage security, you'll have a better understanding of what may influence the borrower to prepay or not. Tip number two, keep both types of option risk in mind. Of the two types of optionality that I mentioned, investors at community banks and credit unions usually pay a lot more attention to prepayment risk. But it's important not to forget about extension risk as well. This has been especially true in the current market environment. If you're thinking about one of these risk types as you evaluate investment ideas, remember to consider the other. In other words, think about how the investment will behave if the option is exercised as well as if it is not. What will happen if one or even a group of investments is called or prepays? What would happen if the options fell out of the money and the investments extend? What's the result in both situations? What's important is to think about this before you make the investment decision. And finally, tip number three, let price determine your bigger risk exposure. When you're evaluating an investment with embedded optionality, should you be more concerned about one type of option risk versus the other? And if so, how do you determine which one is more important? The easy way to determine that answer is to look at the price of the security. If the investment is trading at a premium price, in other words, above par, then the primary type of optionality to think about is prepayment risk. And if the investment has a discount price, you'd want to be thinking first about extension risk. Remember, a fixed income securities price is driven by how the investment's coupon rate compares to current yields in the market for similar investments. If the investment that you're evaluating is trading at a premium, that means the coupon rate is above market, which makes it more likely to be called or to prepay. On the other hand, a discount price indicates that the coupon rate is below the current market level. Under those circumstances, any embedded option is out of the money, so your focus should be considering extension risk first. Taking this approach of focusing on one type of optionality first doesn't mean that you should ignore the other. As I said in tip number one, you'll want to consider both and understand how the investment might behave in both circumstances. What about if an investment is trading at par? Does that mean that you're in the clear? No, not really. If the security contains an embedded option, it can still affect the principal cash flow timeline. If a bond or mortgage security is trading at par, then the risk exposure is more evenly split between prepayment and extension risk. In that case, it would make sense to consider both scenarios on equal footing. So as you can see, optionality is a factor that could play a major role in the behavior of a financial institution's investment portfolio. But if you're aware of that role and you understand the mechanics of options and option risk, as well as how to manage both, you're on your way to at least reducing those portfolio management headaches. I know that we covered some major territory today, and I do hope that you found it helpful. As I mentioned earlier, optionality is one of those fundamental concepts that is important to understand if you're managing a community bank or credit union investment portfolio. 
In fact, that's why option risk is one of the key areas that we cover in the Bond Basics course. If you're newer to your role and you're interested in establishing that foundation of investment knowledge to help you build solid investment skills, or if you've been working with the portfolio for a while and you just want to make sure you have all the essentials locked down, check out Bond Basics. Bond Investment Mentor teamed up with the Graduate School of Banking at Colorado to develop the Bond Basics course, which covers the fundamentals of fixed income investments and managing a community financial institution's investment portfolio. In the course, you'll learn all the essentials you need to develop your investment skills and help you feel more confident in your ability to make sound investment decisions for your institution's investment portfolio. To learn more about the Bond Basics course, head over to bondinvestmentmentor.com forward slash bond basics and register today. And I'll leave a link to it in the episode notes. Well, thanks again for checking in. I hope that you got a lot of good information out of this episode. And if you know someone that would benefit from knowing this information as well, please do me a favor and share it with them. I like to be able to get this information out to as many community bankers as possible. Bond Investment Mentor is written and produced by me, Chris Nelson. The information, views, and opinions expressed during the podcast belong solely to myself, and any ideas and strategies contained within the podcast are for educational and informational purposes only and do not constitute investment, accounting, or legal advice. If you have any questions regarding anything that I covered today, and I know I covered a lot of ground, please email me at chris at bondinvestmentmentor.com. Send me your questions. I'd love to catch up and answer them for you. And if you haven't already, I'd like to invite you to follow the podcast so that you don't miss an episode when it comes out. You can subscribe on any of the major platforms or through whatever podcast app that you use. And if you're looking for more information about fixed income investing and portfolio management, check out the website, bondinvestmentmentor.com. There, you'll find articles, tips, and resources to help you manage your financial institution's investment portfolio. And you can also learn more about the ways in which I can help you become better at what you do. And hey, let's catch up on social media. If you'd like to catch up with me there, you'll find me on LinkedIn. I'm at Christopher Nelson CFA or on Facebook at Bond Investment Mentor. Please reach out and follow or connect with me. I'd love to hear from you. I look forward to catching up with you again soon. Thanks for stopping by. Have a good one.